We've been camped out in Revelation chapter 20 between verses 6 and 7. And hopefully we can move on a little bit next week. And then I'll be out of town for a little while. And you guys will... Titus? Going in... No, you're in second. Yeah, chapter 2. I was... thought you were at the end. So continue your study in Second Timothy. And then we may have a couple Sundays in May to continue <coughs> with Revelation. So, I mean, I'm excited to eventually uh, finish this up. <laughs> but it's been a fun journey, and I hope you guys have been blessed. All the messages, except for last week, are up on the podcast if you ever want to go back and listen. I, I enjoy doing that from time to time myself. Um, but let's, uh, last week we talked about three major passages that describe events or details of the millennial reign of Christ in the Old Testament. We looked at Isaiah 11 and 12. Um, remember chapter 12 was a great chapter in Isaiah, very short. At times we are afraid to declare before the Lord. Um, Micah chapter 4, which precedes the famous passage about Messiah being born in Bethlehem in chapter 5. And today I want to talk about Zechariah 14. It's another very important chapter that sheds light on the nature of the millennium. The millennium won't be a time where there is no sin or no rebellion. Those seeds, Satan though bound, will still reside in the hearts of men. Christ will reign and execute authority with his saints over this present creation to fulfill all the promises, to give the present earth its Sabbath rest, and to end everything in this present creation uh, where it began. And at that time, the Lord will then destroy this creation by fire and remake the heavens and the earth. And in that will dwell righteousness. The church, the nation of Israel, the new Jerusalem, these things will transcend the old order into the new. And so there's a long, long, long glorious future ahead for the people of God. Not just a single event, not just a little period of time, and not just a forever in general, but a long, 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 long future, a distant hope that continues into the ages of the ages of the ages. And so we can look forward to that. I think when we look at God's prophets... Even when we look at the book of Revelation, where did we begin? Way back in 2013. Before we started even going verse by verse through this book, what did we do? We considered its context. We looked at when it was written, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and what were the circumstances taking place in the time it was written. It's important to know that John wrote it that he was an old man at the time. This was long after the gospels had, uh, the other Gospels had been written. It was after Jerusalem had been destroyed. It was after the Jews had been scattered and the church as well. John was on the Isle of Patmos as an old man. He was being persecuted for his faith. And then God gave him a vision of distant hope in a time when there was great suffering and persecution for the church in a time where it appeared that the promises Jesus had made weren't going to come to pass. 
they would come to pass. It wasn't, just wasn't that time. So all of those circumstances, that historical context was, is very important to our understanding of the scriptures. It's important for us to know the context historically of why these prophets spoke, who they spoke to, and what was going on because these things enhance our understanding of what was being written. A lot of times people try to force meanings on the scriptures while completely ignoring the historical context. And that's what Peter calls private interpretation. You need to run from those that privately interpret the scriptures. The scriptures when read and taught don't need any interpretation. They're plain. And the historic context is there. And so when we look at prophecies like Isaiah and Micah, Zechariah, do we even know who these prophets were or why they were sent by God? Do we know what was happening in Israel or in Judah at that time and what events occasioned the words of the prophet? Well, if not, those things are important. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 14 today. But before we do, I think it's important to understand why the prophet Zechariah was sent to the people of Israel and what his message to them was for. What were they doing? Because the same situation that was in Israel in the days of Zechariah the prophet is exactly what's going on right now in the church here in America. There's a whole lot of, excuse my uh, blunt talk here, there's a whole lot of screwing around while the earth, the world is falling apart. There's a whole lot of messing around and talking about things, but very little doing. Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are three of what we call the post-exilic prophets. They were sent by God to the people of Israel after they returned from the land of Babylon, after the 70-year Sabbath rest for Israel, after the remnant came back. And we like to think, well, God punished the remnant, they went into captivity, they came back, and then everybody got right with God. Well, no, that's not what happened. Haggai and Zechariah came at the same time and prophesied at the same time to the remnant. Malachi came years later. And then with Malachi, God just closed the book on the Old Testament. And the next thing that would happen in terms of God's revelation is exactly what the prophet Malachi told the people. And it was 400 years. It's dangerous when we get to a place that God speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks to us. We don't listen, we don't listen, we don't listen. Then he just stops speaking to us. But I've told you this before. I've been reading through the Spanish Bible. I want to read the whole Bible in Spanish. And I started a long time ago. I'd like to think it helps my ability to communicate. That's up for debate. But I finished the New Testament a long time ago. Now I'm in the Old Testament. And I just started the book of Job yesterday. And so I have come through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These books are written about events that took place after the Babylonian captivity. And it's in this context that the prophet Zechariah, we're going to look at chapter 14 today, came to the people and prophesied of future things, including details about the future millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to kind of set the context today. Uh, we talked about God giving the land Sabbath rest 
And that's why the people were taken out of the land for 70 years. They were supposed to let the land rest every seventh year. They didn't do it. From the dedication of the temple in Solomon's day all the way until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. There was never a Sabbath rest. These people disobeyed God. And so 70 years they were out of their land so the land could rest. After that 70 years, in 536 B.C., remember 586 B.C., is when the temple was destroyed. 605 or 606 B.C. is when the first captivity was taken. Okay, That would have included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some of the higher society of Jerusalem. So 606, the first captivity, and the people were out of the land or taken out of the land all the way until 536, 70 years later. And Cyrus prophesied by name 150 years before his birth. The Persian king, when there was no Persia, prophesied by Isaiah, gave a decree. That decree allowed the people to return and rebuild their temple. This was in 536 B.C. Two years later, in the second year of Cyrus, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy was given to the prophet. So Daniel, an old man by this time, stayed back in Babylon, obviously, was used of God down, down through the latter years of his life. Israel goes back with the decree of Cyrus. Two years later, God gives the prophet the 70 weeks prophecy that we talked about. When the people of Israel returned to the land, there were leaders amongst the people. We've, we've heard these names before. Zerubbabel, who was in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Joshua, the high priest that Satan stood against in those days. Zechariah writes about these things. Ezra, the scribe. Nehemiah, the Tirshatha, or the governor. Mordecai, who was taken captive with the captivity of Ezekiel, but was used by God after he actually came back to the land and then was later back in Persia for the events of Esther, all of these men would die very, very old. You know, it seems when we look at God's dealings with the descendants of Abraham throughout history, there are times when it seems as if these promises would fail and God raises up people and oftentimes these people live long lives. The miracle that was done in the life of Abraham and Sarah didn't stand alone. It happened many times. It happened with Boaz, it happened with Jesse, it happened later with Zerubbabel. These were very old men. Think about this. We're told in the book of Esther that Mordecai was of those taken captive with the king of Judah, Jehoiachin. That happened in 597 B.C. It's from this period that Ezekiel dates his writings. So Mordecai was taken in 597 B.C. captive. Now, let's just assume he was a little baby in 597. We, we look at the timeline and go to the book of Esther. It was about 509 or 508 B.C. that he was appointed prime minister in the kingdom of Persia after the events of Esther. So even if he was a little baby in 597, then we're talking, and, and he's at least 90 years old when he is rewarded by the king at the book of Esther, at least. So we're talking old men. 
Nehemiah came back in 536 B.C. with Ezra. But then he's back there 70 years later trying to finish building the walls that were neglected by the people. So these were old men. They were raised up by God, used of him. 536 B.C., the people come back. In the seventh month, they come back under Zerubbabel in the genealogy of Christ. They come back and in the seventh month, which is typically the month that the Jews celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, the Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a great offering gathered from the poor people who were left in the land. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and carried away people captive, the poor, the dirt poor were left in the land. If you take all the people out of a land, what's going to happen to it? What's going to happen, you can see a small picture out here. When you drive in the driveway and look to the left, there's a house all grown up. Can't even hardly see it. I think McKinnon and Bethany went and played around in the old house yesterday. I hope you guys are careful. Sometimes those things can cave in on you. But that's what happens. And so if you're wanting to secure a kingdom or increase your kingdom, you're not going to just bring everybody out of it. You've got to leave people to take care of the land. So the poor, including Jeremiah, were left behind. These were dirt poor people to take care of the land. Well, by the time the remnant returned, it was discovered that God had actually blessed the poor that were left behind. And it was the poor in 586 B.C. that had gathered a great offering and brought it for the rebuilding of the temple. This was in the seventh month. We then see some things in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra, in that same seventh month, beginning on the first day, read the law before the people standing behind a pulpit of wood. On the 15th day of that seventh month was the Feast of Tabernacles. Nehemiah says there hadn't been a Feast of Tabernacles like that going all the way back to the days of Joshua. On the 24th day of that seventh month, The people made a covenant before God. They made a covenant. We're not going to make the mistakes of our fathers. We promise we're not going to give our daughters to the the foreigners. We're not going to mix with the other nations and follow their gods and make the same mistakes that our fathers did. We won't do that. This all took place approximately in the seventh month of 536 B.C. And an offering was taken up for the specific purpose of rebuilding the temple. So you think, man, all of this stuff's happening. An offering's taken up. We've got what we need. Let's get right to work. Well, it didn't happen. I want to give you a little insight on Ezra and Nehemiah. If you ever go back and read and study these things, there's some important things you need to remember chronologically speaking. Ezra and Nehemiah originally was one book. It was compiled by Ezra and Nehemiah, and it, was, it formed one book. It wasn't two separate books. Okay? Um, now, when we read these books, Ezra pretty much follows chronologically from the first year of King Cyrus and the return and all the way through the ministry of Ezra. But when we get to the book of Nehemiah, we're much later in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. This is when... The 70 weeks prophecy actually starts ticking. It's what starts it off when Nehemiah is given a commandment to go back and rebuild the walls. 
And if you read the book of Nehemiah from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way until chapter 7, verse 4, you're in 454 B.C. You're in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, after the events of Ezra, much, at, much later. But when you get to chapter 7, verse 5, God said, the, the, Nehemiah writes, And my God put in my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. So the time came to reckon the people by genealogy. And this wasn't the first time. And it says, I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first, and I found written therein. So anyway, he finds a record that was put together back when the people returned in 536 B.C. He found it, and then he begins to read it. And that's what you find in the rest of the chapter. This is the same genealogy. You can find it in Ezra. So this goes back from 7, chapter 5, chapter 7, verse 5. It goes back in time to the original return. Okay? And then what we see is we get into chapter, the end of chapter 7, and it talks about the people being gathered together from all the cities in the seventh month. That's the same seventh month we see at the end of chapter 2 in the book of Ezra. It's the same seventh month where the offering was gathered, where Ezra preached behind the pulpit, where the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated. Chapter 8, verse 17 of Nehemiah, this is the exact same Feast of Tabernacles that happens in the, in the, in the first year of Cyrus. Okay, if you continue on through Nehemiah, all the way until chapter 12, verse 26. At the end, in the first part, or the last, uh, beginning with verse 10 of chapter 12, we have another genealogy that records the, the descendants of people in that first genealogy. So in the middle of chapter 12, we have a genealogy that was apparently inserted later. And then we get to chapter 12, verse 27, and the narrative that Nehemiah stepped away from to hearken back to the first year of Cyrus continues in the 20th year. Chapter 12, verse 27, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And so when you read the book of Nehemiah, the events of rebuilding the walls goes up to chapter 7, verse 4. And then chronologically, it continues in chapter 12, verse 27. Everything sandwiched between harkens back to this re original return under Zerubbabel when some covenants were made with God, when an offering was taken up to rebuild the temple. So when we understand those things, then there's not a bunch of confusion like, okay, this thing happened twice, and how is this possible? Nehemiah would have been 180 years old and all of this. So Nehemiah steps away from the, the days of the walls being rebuilt and hearkens back to the original return. And when we understand this, we begin to see that there was a reason why Ezra was ticked off at the people for marrying and having children with the foreigners. It wasn't just some random thing. So there's some chronological things to consider. So when you read Nehemiah... All the way to 7 verse 5 is in the days of the walls being rebuilt. 
7, 6 through 12, chapter 12, verse 26, harkens back in time from 454 B.C. to 536 B.C., okay? And then beginning in chapter 12, verse 27, it fast-forwards back to the days of the walls. And then we see that Nehemiah served as a governor uh, beyond that. So that's just a, a key to studying the book of Nehemiah. So 536 B.C., the people come back. They have an offering. They have the means to rebuild the temple. They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the land. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we read about Ezra reading the law before the people. On the first day, 15th day, they start celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, unlike had been done since the days of Joshua. The 24th day, they make a covenant. Nehemiah chapter 10. We will not do what our fathers have done. We won't give our children to the foreigners of the land so that they may follow their gods. This was covenanted. This isn't something God told them to do. This is something they said we're going to do. Okay, then we see that in the book of Ezra that in the second year, of Cyrus, 534 B.C., two years later, these people had an offering. The foundation of the temple was, was not laid. So they already started <clears throat> lollygagging around. The foundation had not been laid. 534 B.C. Then these books, as we proceed chronologically, show us that the people of the land then began to harass the Jews, make problems for them. They lollygagged around, didn't start building right away. Then it allowed the people of the land to figure out what was going on and start harassing the people. They had a decree from the king. They had the authority to do it, didn't do it. And then the people started harassing them. And then we see a great folly, a great folly amongst those who should have known better. Turn to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. I highlight this because this folly exists amongst us in the church. Really grave today. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. When things get tough, if we faint, then we, we never had any strength in the first place. It was all talk. It was all bold talk. You know, I have a background in martial arts. I still train. I still teach. In martial arts circles in America, there's a lot of Proverbs 24 verse 10. There's a lot of big talk. But in the day of adversity, it proves just to be that bold talk. But these people began to be harassed and they got afraid and their strength failed. Therefore, through the rest of the reigns of Cyrus and then the king that came after him, Cambyses, the king that came after him who only had a seven-month reign, his name was Pseudo-Smerdis, king of Persia, the people... Let the work go. About 14 years, just kind of let it go. The foundation was laid, 
two years later, or, or I mean the foundation was laid, and then the work just kind of was gone. The people were harassed and they got afraid and they quit doing what they were supposed to do, even though they had authority from the king. By the time, by 521 B.C., so the foundation was laid in 534. By 521 B.C., the work had pretty much ceased. There was a little bit here and there. And instead of standing up to those that harassed them, they cowered and the people only got more, only offered more harassment. And so there was some politics going on and a letter was written to the king of Persia saying, you know, these people have a long history of rebelling against kingdoms that are in charge. You, you, you want to make sure these people stop what they're doing. Well, this king of Persia got the letter and he ordered the work to stop temporarily until he could research the matter. You know, there was word that this king, that King Cyrus had authorized it, that had been forgotten. All right, for now, let's just stop. Let me look into this more. Don't do anything until you hear from me again. Well, unfortunately, this king died. He only reigned for seven months and he suddenly died. So the people never heard back from him. And the work ceased completely until what we're told was the second year of Darius the king. Not the same Darius that took over the city of Babylon in the days of Daniel, Belshazzar's feast. But the work ceased completely. They just stopped. Folly number two. Folly number one, the people became afraid. Folly number two, they stopped doing God's work. Isn't that what the church is today? We get afraid. Oh, there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the streets. That's what the verse that Bishnu likes to highlight from Proverbs. And there's no lion in the streets at all. And so the work stops. The work stops. You know, when Solomon built that first temple, that glorious temple, the second temple only paled in comparison to it. It only took Solomon seven years to build it. But here we are. The people have been back in the land 16 years and nothing's been accomplished. The foundation was laid, a little work, but there was the temple far from finished. It was in this context that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came to rebuke the people. They showed up on the scene about 520 B.C. when the people, out of fear, had stopped building. That is the context. There was a small remnant that said, let's do the work. Just like Joshua and Caleb when the spies went into the land. But the people didn't listen. They were content to do their own thing. They were afraid. They cared more about their jobs and their careers and their livelihood. So they certainly weren't going to take a stand for the things of God. And the work ceased. It was in this context that Haggai and Zechariah show up. And what is the theme of their message to the people? Is it, let's get together and love on one another? No. Haggai states it bluntly in chapter 2 of his book. Consider your ways, people. Consider your ways. 
They showed up to rebuke the people for their slothfulness, their laziness, their fearfulness, their cowardice. We're not called to be afraid people. We're not called to be slothful in our business or in the Lord's work. At that time, Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and the two prophets themselves didn't wait around for the people to start building again. They never heard back from the king, but they still had that original authority from Cyrus 16 years earlier. And so instead of waiting around for the people and saying, hey, you guys need to rebuild the temple, you need to rebuild the temple, no. The governor, the high priest, and the two prophets started doing it themselves. Fine. If you people are going to sit around, we'll do it. And so these four started doing the work themselves. Of course, four men be very difficult to rebuild a temple. But it wasn't a do-as-I-say mentality that the prophets came. It was a do-as-I-do. And as a result, the leadership started getting their hands dirty. The prophets got their hands dirty. And this compelled the people to obey. We've got it backwards in the church today. We expect the pastors to do all the work. And then the pastor thinks that he can just tell the people to do it. And he'll sit back and let them do it. No way. Peter says those in leadership are to be in samples. That means they get their hands dirty. And their example compels the people to get off their rear ends and get to work. And that's what we see here. We didn't see a governor and a high priest and a couple prophets telling the people to do one thing and yet doing something else. We, didn't see, we don't see them sitting in a chair. Some of them were very old at this point, telling everybody else what to do. We see them off their rear ends in, in, involved in physical labor. And as a result, the people were strengthened. They began to ignore their harassers who continued to complain to the king. And they just said, we'll just, okay, we'll build. So there were some complaints made to the king. There was a new king on the throne now, Darius. Darius Hystaspas, he's called in history. And he replied back to the complainers and said that he had found the record of Cyrus. That Cyrus did indeed give the people permission to build the temple. And he told these harassers to leave them alone and let them do the work. This Darius is an interesting character. He came to the throne in 521 BC. In 520 he sent a letter reauthorizing the building of the temple. They had found the record of Cyrus in the archives. And so the people were given a second time the authority to... To, to finish the work. So this was at the same time Haggai and Zechariah showed up. A year later, 519 B.C., Darius had a queen named Vashti. He disposed her. Five years later, guess who becomes his queen? Esther the Jew. By this time, Mordecai, an old man, is back in Babylon. Or not in Babylon, in, in, in Sushan the palace. 509 B.C. was Haman's plot to wipe out the Jews. 508, Mordecai becomes prime minister. So he's at least, at the very least, if he was a newborn babe when he was taken captive, he's at least 89 years old at, at the end of the book of Esther. So this Darius, who was the king, Ahasuerus, remember when, when, you, when you see words like Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, these were titles that were given to the Persian kings. They weren't 
personal names. They were titles. And so the, the Ahasuerus of Esther was this Darius. It's in the sixth year of Darius. Okay, so this would have been uh, just before Esther becomes his queen. It would have been during the time they were searching. He was searching for a new queen. He sends, he reauthorized, or, or I'm sorry, in the sixth year of Darius, the temple is finally completed. So the second year of Darius, he authorizes, reauthorizes the rebuilding. And in the sixth year, four years later, it, the second temple is completed under the watch care of Haggai and Zechariah. So God sent these prophets to rebuke the people so they get up off their butt and do the work, fulfill their ministry, fulfill their commitment. We have a big problem in the churches of those making commitments, claiming to be called of God, and then refusing to fulfill it. And then justifying it by claiming that God's leading them elsewhere. We've got a long history of that in this church. I've had a long history of it in our ministry with people that have come to serve. And they may have one or two things to say about me. They may have an opinion about me that's definitely not flattering. But what I can say is 17 years after God called me to start this ministry... I'm still here talking about Jesus. It doesn't look exactly what I thought it would, but I'm still here. I'm still laboring. And even though I'm tired and weary, I'm going to go forth because God values commitment. And screwing around brings rebuke. So it's this context in which Zechariah came and had lots to say about the end times. So what was the point of it? The point of it was to compel people to get up off their rear ends, even in these dark days, stop moping and whining and pining away in fear and do the work of the Lord. Because in the end of days, it's all going to be made right. In the end of days, the one you are to be serving now is going to rule and reign. Where will you be found? I think that's an appropriate message for us in these days. Zechariah came preaching with Haggai. We have some great messianic prophecies there. We have the prophecy of Haggai 2 where the people rebuilding that temple are sorrowful because, hey, this temple doesn't look anything like Solomon's temple. And the prophet said, no worries. This second temple that you finally got up, got up off your rear end to build is going to surpass the glory of the first temple because in this temple, the desire of all nations, the Messiah will actually come and stand. Something that never happened in Solomon's temple. Where do we see Jesus suddenly showing up in Jerusalem? The beginning of his ministry at the temple. So some amazing prophecies here about the first and second comings of Christ. The end of Zechariah tells us that the Messiah is the one. Not only is he God himself, he's the one that Israel would pierce. And that one day they would recognize him. So lots of prophecies, including details about the millennium in this context of the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I think um, this highlights why it's important not to avoid prophecy in our teaching and preaching in God's church, but to preach it. Because it's always been the prophecies of future things, the kingdom of God is meant to motivate God's people. 
You know, I believe and teach in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Not because somebody named John Nelson Darby taught it in the 1800s. Not because a blind girl supposedly had a dream about it. And certainly not because Tim LaHaye wrote a whole bunch of books. I believed in a rapture before I heard about any of that. I believe it's biblical. And those that would deny a pre-tribulational rapture of the church often point to the lackadaisical attitude that many who believe this exhibit in their Christian walk. So in other words, okay, you've got these people that preach a rapture, and yet they're sitting in these churches... They're not going out. They're not doing ministry. They're content to just be like the people of Israel screwing around. And therefore, the doctrine must be wrong. That's the the folly of those that would deny this. Well, no, if we truly believe and preach and understand the rapture that our Lord could come at any moment and that He's told us to occupy until He comes, then we're not going to be screwing around. If we are, then we really don't believe these things. So don't throw a doctrine out the window just because some people that claim to believe it aren't living the way they should. That's foolishness. But those of us that do believe it ought to be motivated just like these people that had returned. Israel never got right after it returned from Babylon. They never learned. And before we are too judgmental about them, we should look in the mirror. We've never learned here in America. If we had learned from the bloodshed that took place in this country over 150 years ago in that great civil war, we wouldn't be living divided and at each other's throats politically in this country today. History repeats itself. And the reason we're not able to see it and prevent it is because we don't care about history. We think we're better than everybody that lived before because we have an iPhone in our pocket. We want to stand in judgment on everybody else's morality from the past, thinking we're so superior and so full of pride that we're blind to these things. And we end up making the same mistakes over and over again. You can't fill in all the holes of human history. History is man's recordings of what took place. You can't, there's no such thing as unbiased history other than God's Word. And we can't fill in every detail because not everything was recorded. But we can know what took place generally in these unfilled gaps because we know human nature. And human nature never changes. We can predict the future based upon human nature. Men fail. You know, these, some of these presidential candidates that are promising all of these things, the only reason they have a following is because the people who follow them are so woefully ignorant of history, they actually think that what's been tried and tried and tried again only to fail will not fail if we just try it one more time. Isn't that a definition of foolishness to try the same thing over and over and over again with the same results and to think that somehow the results will change? You know, evolution, that's really the basis of evolutionary thought. You know, Everything we observe that happens over and over again, if it's done enough times over a long enough period of time, it'll change. That, maybe that's not a definition of foolishness. Maybe that's a definition of insanity, perhaps. But Israel never learned. And this same Zechariah that came and was used of God 
would later be sometime after this murdered by the people. Jesus refers to this. Jesus tells the multitude that one of these days, God is going to require the blood of all his prophets from Abel all the way to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple. So this same temple that Zechariah helped build, the people later murdered him in that temple. Now, some people try to say that, you know, Jesus was actually referring to an event that happened uh, in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 24 where the son of Jehoiada the priest... Remember, he's the one, him and his wife hid the little baby, King Joash. King Joash was righteous, but then the son of Jehoiada, Zechariah, rebuked him for his sin against God. And so those who were uh, benefited from the labor and the service of Jehoiada the priest turned on his son and murdered him. So this little baby, King Joash, grew up, and then he got mad at the son of the man who hid him for rebuking him when he needed to be rebuked. And so they stoned him in the temple. But this Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada. Jesus specifically refers to Zechariah, the son of Berechias, which is the Zechariah of the book of Zechariah. This Zechariah was murdered in the second temple after he was sent by God to help rebuild it. That's a long story of broken record that's been repeated time and time again. That's why Jesus told the people, look, you guys build up these tombs of the prophets and you talk about following the prophets, but your fathers murdered them. Don't we do the same thing today? The people that want to lift up, they want to preach against racism today and they want to lift up these figures from history that were used to bring an end to slavery or, or whatever it may be. And yet the people who are so virtuous today, it's their fathers that wrought evil against the people they lift up today. Foolishness, hypocrisy. But this Zechariah would later be murdered. Those details aren't recorded in the Old Testament. But Jesus, who knew history, rebuked the multitude, including the religious leaders, with that fact And they certainly didn't argue with him. Jesus didn't get his facts wrong. Jesus wasn't talking about some other event and got the guy's father wrong. Our Lord knew everything. This man was murdered sometime after. Matthew 23, 35. So here we are in 516 B.C. The temple was destroyed in 586. Seventy years later, the second temple is completed. 516 B.C. Fifty years after this, 467 B.C., Ezra, who is very old by this time, he had gone back. He obviously had responsibilities in the kingdom of Persia. See, the king would let these high-ranking officials go back, but then they needed to come back at some point. Ezra goes back, but then 50 years later, he returns. These, These events are recorded in the latter part of Ezra. He's a very old man, and it's in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. So here we're talking about the king who gives Nehemiah the commandment to go back and rebuild the city. This is the king referenced in the Daniel 70-week prophecy. Ezra goes back in 467 B.C. in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. 
Nehemiah goes back in the 20th year of Artaxerxes to help rebuild the walls, to give you some historical framework. We learn in Ezra chapter 7 where it says after these things, that means after all the things uh, about rebuilding the temple, that's about 50 years later, we learn that Ezra, an old man, makes a journey from Babylon to Jerusalem with the blessing of the king and with great provision, and it only takes him four months. So it only takes an old man four months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem in 467 B.C., Therefore, we know it didn't take the wise men from Babylon two years to get to Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 1. It was a four-month journey for an old man. So the wise men probably came to Jesus. Um, Herod died, I believe, when Jesus was around. Herod died in uh, 4 B.C. So probably only about six months after Jesus was born. So the wise men came sometime in that six-month window. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, which really wasn't that far away distance-wise, and then they came back. So the wise men probably came. uh, We know they weren't there 30 days after the birth of Jesus because Mary and Joseph didn't have an offering. They they had to give an offering that only the poor could give. And so sometime one or two months after Jesus was born, the wise men show up, and then they flee to Egypt and come back when Herod dies around Passover 4 B.C. But anyway, Ezra makes this journey. And in chapter 9, he discovers that the people of the land didn't keep the covenant that they made with God in Nehemiah chapter 10. When they came back in 536 B.C., before they started screwing around, they made this promise that they weren't going to mix with the people of the land and make the mistakes of their fathers. Seventy years later... Ezra comes back and discovers that they didn't keep that promise. They mixed with the peoples of the land. Their children intermarried. And as a result, their children were following after false gods and making the same mistakes of their fathers. And that's why you see in chapter 9 of Ezra him rebuking the people. They wept and confessed and then they put away the strangers from amongst them. You guys made a promise not to do this. Now you've done it. So the only way you can make it right is you need to put away these strange wives and separate yourselves. About 13 years after this, 454 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah returns because here we are, all these years later, the temple's been rebuilt, but the city is still in ruins. And nobody's made any effort to build the walls. It's just people are living in ruins. And at this point, the 70 weeks prophecy starts ticking. So 82 years after the decree of Cyrus, all the walls are still in disarray. The The city is in ruins. There's no progress that's been made. When Ezra came back, 13 years earlier, the king sent provision with him. And the people hadn't done anything with it. How much are we in churches like that? We take up these offerings and we don't use it. We just sit on it. It's an old, old story. So before we become too judgmental about Israel's rebellion in her history, we should look in the mirror. 82 years later, the city's still in ruin. So Nehemiah comes around. This is 454 B.C., 
And it's at this point, Daniel said 69 weeks of years later, the Messiah, the Prince, would show up. Nehemiah was especially sad on a particular day. It's the month Nisan. We're not told which day. It makes sense. It was the day of Passover. That's why he was especially sad. King Artaxerxes says, all right, I'll make a decree. Go back and rebuild the city. The clock starts ticking. Exactly 69 weeks of years later, from 454 B.C., Messiah shows up. And it's the one time in his life the people recognize him as the Messiah. Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 30. The prophecy told us that after this, the Messiah would be cut off. He was cut off on the 14th of Nisan. That the city would be destroyed. The city that's been commanded to be rebuilt would be destroyed. That happened on the 10th of Nisan, A.D. 70. And the temple itself would be destroyed. That happened on the 9th of Av, A.D. 70. It's interesting. The Romans destroyed this temple, the second temple, on the same day of the same month that Babylon destroyed Solomon's temple. Happened on the 9th of Av. Exact same day, exact same month. That's interesting. So, Nehemiah shows up. People are still screwing around. Temple's been rebuilt. They didn't keep their covenant. He comes in there and it's just a mess. And then we read the story of how he motivated the people to get up off their rear ends. They had to build the wall with a tool in one hand and a sword in another. There's a lot that the book of Nehemiah teaches us about the duty to defend ourselves and our families so that we can do God's work. We learn that Nehemiah acted as a governor at this time for a 12-year period, and then he had to return to resume his duties. So from 454 to 442 B.C., he was the governor. He rebuked the people during this time for their religious hypocrisy. A lot of the things that show up later in rabbinic Judaism, the seeds were sown during this period. And we see Nehemiah rebuking things like, for instance, the priests and the leaders sitting on their butts and watching everybody work and working with their mouths while sitting around, expecting the people to work while they don't lift a finger. Remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees that you put all these burdens on the people, but you won't even lift your pinky finger to do any of it. This was going on in the days of Nehemiah. So everything we see in rabbinic Judaism today was born out of the religious hypocrisy and the laziness and the screwing around that took place after the people returned. The end of Nehemiah, we see the walls are dedicated. Ezra's still around at this time. He reads the law before the people, just like he did back in the, when, the, when they originally returned. 442, Nehemiah returns to Babylon, but he gets leave to come back again. And he lives out his days rebuking the people for their mixed multitude, for ignoring the law and God's Sabbath, and for taking wives from the heathen. Israel never kept the promises they made to God in Sinai and they never kept the promises they made to God when they came back from Babylon. Never kept them. These were promises they made. That's why Solomon says, be careful what you say to God when you talk to Him in His house. Let your words be few 
Because God's going to hold you accountable for what you say. Jesus said God is going to hold us accountable for every idle word we speak. And that's why our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Don't be making promises to God. I, don't, I try not to make promises to God because He will hold us to them. And that's really what the millennium is about. God holding the people of Israel to what they said they were going to do. And that's why there's going to be a period where they observe God's law, they keep His law, there are sacrifices, and they serve their community service. God will hold you to it. Don't promise Him you're going to serve Him. Don't tell His church you're going to serve Him and you're going to do this and then not keep your commitment. There's some that I've interacted like that, you know, that I've interacted with in ministry that didn't keep their commitments. And if the truth were to be told, they're probably sitting doing nothing for the kingdom of God now. Malachi shows up sometime after Nehemiah dies. So sometime after 442 B.C. in the following years, he shows up and rebukes the religious hypocrisy of the people. However, as in all times, there is a small remnant in Malachi's day to which he, with visions of future things, encourages to stay the course. One day Israel would do what they said they would do. And then Malachi the prophet dies. I'm not even sure what happens to him. I don't know what the tradition is on that. But around 440 B.C., no more prophets. That's it. God said it. You've got his word. You're not listening. So God quit speaking. Now, a lot of things happen after that in Jewish history. A lot of things happen. A lot of people think God has spoken to them. And then the, the failure of their enterprises proves otherwise. God goes silent until about 5, 6, six 5 B.C., no more prophets. No more direct word from God. He doesn't speak again until the angel comes to Zacharias in Luke 1. Yet, his prophetic clock keeps ticking. Prophecy is fulfilled. Daniel chapter 10 and 11 is an amazing grouping of prophecies that predicts events that would take place on the political stage involving Israel during this 400 years of silence between the Testaments. In fact, it's so accurate in small details that Bible quote-unquote scholars have tried to argue that there must have been a second Daniel. There's no way that Daniel could prophesy these things. It must have been a second Daniel that lived after these events. That's what the liberal Bible scholar always does when confronted with them the miraculous nature of fulfilled prophecy he wants to say based on no historical evidence whatsoever. Oh, well, there must have been another Isaiah. There must have been another Daniel that lived many years after. There must have been another John, not the apostle that wrote the book of Revelation. It's an old story. It's an old accusation that holds no water. But God went silent. <clears throat> So the context of Zechariah, not just chapter 14, but the whole book, we are about 80 years before the close of the Old Testament. We're just a few years before this prophet himself would be murdered by the people he went to help. 
God tells the people that this blood will be avenged. His blood will be avenged one day. But that's the context. In a day when Israel was screwing around full of fear, when the prophet had to come with Haggai and get the people off their rear end, the temple had been rebuilt. And yet we see Israel still screws around. Still doesn't take God's commandments seriously. It's in this context that Zechariah the prophet preaches the future kingdom. He preaches the millennium and the future kingdom as a distant hope for the small remnant that remained. There was still a remnant. Those that listened to the prophets. You know, the Bible, I had a conversation with a guy on the streets in Bogota in Spanish, so it's very possible I didn't understand everything. But I offered him a tract. He was a believer. We got, got to talking there on the streets. And he started talking about signs and wonders. And, you know, the proof of God's uh, blessing a ministry or God's uh, sending of a prophet and signs and wonders in the church. And I just said to him that you got to be real careful with that stuff because the Bible tells us that the real proof that God has sent a preacher or a prophet to speak is that there is a remnant that actually hears and repents and turns from their evil ways. That's what it says there in the book of Jeremiah. That the real fruit of God's prophets is repentance and people turning back to God. And he kind of wanted to argue with me about it and go to Acts chapter 2 and talk about signs and wonders. And Of course, we know the devil can effectuate signs and wonders. The devil can control the weather. You know, did you know the devil can control the weather? Go read the book of Job. And this is fresh on my mind because I just read this yesterday in Spanish. Job goes before God. I mean, not Job, Satan. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's a man of integrity. And Satan said, look, God, you've blessed him. He's got all of these things. Take that away, and then he'll curse you to his face. And then what does God say? God doesn't say, okay, I'll do it. God says, okay, Satan, he's in your hands. You do with him what you please, but you're not allowed to touch his flesh. And then later, he was allowed to touch his flesh, and God said, do what you please, but you're not allowed to kill him. So God took his hands off the matter. He set a boundary. Satan, you're not allowed to touch his flesh. And so what happened? Satan went out, and Satan was allowed to take away everything he owned. And what did that involve? It involved what one of the servants of Job said was fire down, that came down from heaven. That fire didn't come down from God. It came down from Satan. It involved a cyclone or a tornado that came and wiped out the house where Job's children we're fellowshipping together. That didn't come from God. That came from Satan. Satan controlled the weather and was able to do so because God gave him permission. So just because there's a sign and a wonder or a weather pattern doesn't mean it's proof that someone's of God. Signs and wonders. John tells us to test the spirits. There are many false prophets that go into the world. But um, the proof is that they're... The proof of God's prophets or God's words is that it affects repentance, it, even in a small remnant. And so in the days of these prophets, there was a small remnant. In fact, Malachi refers to them at the end of his book. Zechariah refers to these in his prophecies. 
So that brings us to Zechariah chapter 14. We did get started a little late, so just bear with me a moment. You guys have probably read this. Some details here. I won't read it now. Zechariah chapter 14, the end of the book, in this larger historical context, we read about verse, the first three verses, the battle of Armageddon. Exactly what we see in Revelation 19. The Lord will go forth and fight against the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Here's Armageddon. The book of Joel records this battle. Then we get to verse 4. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly what John records in chapter 19. And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Jesus Christ is coming back and He's putting His foot right down at the same place His foot left. When the, when the angels saw the apostles standing around staring in the heavens, look, why are you staring around? This same Jesus who left from this spot will come back in the same way you saw Him left. Just like the prophets say. His feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. It will split in the middle toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it to the south. So the Mount of Olives is a mountain that is to the um, east of Jerusalem, and he's going to stand on it and split it right in half, and a mountain becomes a valley. And he'll walk right into the eastern gate. And when he steps on the Mount of Olives, what that is now is primarily a Muslim area. It's not a very safe place to be. He's going to step on and split it right in half. Verse 5, and this tells what's going to happen, that the people are going to flee just like they did in the days of King Uzziah when there was an earthquake. And the Lord my God shall come. Messiah is God. It's God that comes back. And all the saints with thee. This is the exact same thing that Enoch saw. Behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Recorded there in the book of Jude. This is exactly what John records in chapter 19. Jesus comes back with his saints. With those that have been raptured. Part of that army to deliver Jerusalem. Verses 8 through 11, we see that the millennial kingdom is set up. Verse 9, it's a theocracy. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and His name one. King over the earth. The millennial kingdom is set up. We see in these verses that there will be major geological and topographical changes to the land of Israel just like there were major geological changes to the earth after the flood. You know, these giant craggy mountains and deserts and canyons and things we see today, those are fruits of God's judgment. They're beautiful. They're glorious. I enjoy hiking in the mountains. Even God's judgment's beautiful. It's not disorderly like man or Satan. But there will be major geological changes. Not only does the Mount of Olives split in two and become a river valley... We also see in these verses that the area around Jerusalem, Jerusalem's kind of on a little bit of a hill, and it's got a valleys around it, and there's just a bunch of hills. And so when an invading army came, it was difficult to approach Jerusalem from all sides because of the topography. Um, 
And so what's going to happen is the area around Jerusalem is actually going to be lifted up. And in being lifted up, it's going to become, I don't know, if some of you in here have been to Kathmandu. Of course, I just got back with Eric and Mindy from Bogota. And what you see is a city in a big valley. The valley's a bowl and the valley's lifted up. So in order to get to Kathmandu, you have to climb. And then you come over the hills and you're in this high altitude valley. Same thing in Bogota. Bogota sits at 8,500 feet and you have to climb over the hills and drop way down to get out of it. It's just a big lifted up valley and it looks like a plain surrounded by hills. That's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's going to be lifted up amidst the hills and then as a result, it becomes a water source. Remember when Ezekiel sees the temple the millennial temple, we looked at this, that the water is going to proceed out of the throne there in the, uh, it, and it's going to proceed out and then about a mile out, it's going to be deep enough to swim in Then it's going to come down to Jerusalem and it's going to split into two forks. One fork will go to the Dead Sea. The other fork will go to the Mediterranean Sea. And as a result of that, the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed. So Jerusalem becomes a water source. What we read here in verses 8 through 11 agrees with what Ezekiel sees at the end of his prophecy. Dead Sea becomes a place for fishermen. Today you don't fish in the Dead Sea. It's dry. It's barren. You swim in it. You don't drink it. You don't open your eyes under the water. Very foolish thing to do. Do not drink the water. You've got to get a shower after you get out of the Dead Sea. It's oily and full of minerals because water flows into it, but it doesn't flow out. Things will change. The Dead Sea will be healed. It will be a place for fishermen to cast their, net, cast their nets. And the water will flow year-round. In Israel today, you have a lot of water flow, but it's not year-round. That's why you have what are called wadis. A wadi has water part of the year, and in the rest of the year, it's a dry riverbed. This time of year, it's very dangerous to hike in the canyons in Israel because the waters have been dry. And now they start to flow again because the rains come. And so you'll see videos of a dry wadi and then suddenly water bursts forth and flows out. And so they tell you don't hike in these canyons down around uh, in Gedi where David hid from Saul. Great hiking. This time of year it's not real safe because the waters suddenly spring forth. But in the days of Messiah there won't be seasonal water flow. It'll flow all year long in both summer and winter. We're told Jerusalem will be safely inhabited. And this won't have happened since the days of Solomon and Jehoshaphat. The only times I can think of in Old Testament history after the temple was built was the days of Solomon and then later in the days of Jehoshaphat, Jerusalem was safe by and large. It's never been that way since. It's not safely inhabited even today. Verses 12 through 15. Again, I'm just summarizing quickly. We see the destruction of the wicked at Armageddon. It's described in detail what's going to happen. You know, we read about Messiah coming back, throwing the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, overthrowing the wicked. But here we have details about how, what that'll look like. And if you want a picture of it, just go drudge up that old Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. When the Nazis open the ark... What happens to them is what's described here. Where do you think the movie maker got that from? It's amazing that so many of these movie makers in Hollywood hate God, hate the Bible. They're controlled like marionettes by demons. And yet the imagery they come up with is straight from the scriptures. 
because the very demons that control them know the scriptures, know they're true. Why do you think all of these movies, you know, nowadays start talking about, you know, people disappearing and alien abductions and all this kind of stuff? Because the demons know that the rapture's coming. And when it comes, they've already filled everybody's minds with all this other nonsense that they'll just toss it away as well. Mother Nature acted to protect herself or some aliens came or this, that, and the other. But those, that scene there in Raiders of the Lost Ark comes from here. What we see is that people's eyes and their tongues melt right out of their holes and they turn against and destroy each other. That's what happens. They'll turn on each other and consume away. And as a result, there will be great spoil for Jerusalem in abundance left behind. Verse 16 is very interesting. After Armageddon and the description here of what takes place, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go even up from year to year to worship the king. So here we learn that there will be survivors. There are people of the nations left that come under the dominion of Christ. I think a clue about these nations is in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 when Messiah comes. There are sheep nations and goat nations that are brought before him. And those that survive that judgment are those that aided his brethren, the Jews. There will be nations that perhaps hides Jews or tries to help them during the seven years of tribulation. But there will be people left and what happens? They will be expected to come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Whosoever will not come up of the families of the earth, not just Jews but Gentiles, verse 17, even upon them shall be no rain. And the family of Egypt, if it go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague. Wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is where you would drop what you were doing. You would come to Jerusalem. You'd live in booths to remember God's protecting or preserving the people in the wilderness wanderings. And it'd be a time of feasting and fellowship and rest and worshiping God. We trust God enough to provide for us that we can drop what we're doing in the middle of our schedule. And we can go up and rest and fellowship and worship Him. That's what tabernacles was for. But the people didn't keep it. You're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium. And those Gentile nations that refuse to do so, they're going to be punished with famine and drought. So the Feast of Tabernacles will be one of the chief holidays celebrated in the millennium. And all nations will be expected to keep it. Verses 17 through 19 tell us that rebellion... There will be rebellion and there will be consequences in the millennium, even with Satan bound. Even with him bound, man is still rebellious. So that when he comes out of his place at the end, he doesn't have to work too hard to find people that want to gather together and overthrow the Messiah. Of course, we, we will be in our glorified bodies without sin, ruling and reigning with Christ. This is talking about the Gentiles that survive. We've already shown you verses that talk about people having children in the millennium. Verse 20 is interesting, and it says that even the everyday dishes in Jerusalem, even the bells on the horses in that day 
the everyday stuff they live uh, use will be sanctified just like the gold and silver that used to be in Solomon's temple. Even the everyday dishes will be sanctified. People will be eating on gold and silver, wealth and riches in abundance. What used to be treasures in the temple will be everyday tableware in the millennium. No more mixed multitude like in the days of Zechariah. No more screwing around. No more telling God you're going to do thing, one thing and doing another. But Israel doing and fulfilling what they promised God they would do at Sinai and after they returned to the land. No more mixed multitude. No more screwing around. Those are some details we get from Zechariah chapter 14 about the millennia. So the future millennial reign of Christ is an amazing time in this earth's future that we can look forward to. And as we think about these things, may it motivate us to get up off our rear ends like it did the remnant when Zechariah came preaching these things. I'll be with you next week. There are a few other minor details um, from the prophets, the minor prophets about the millennium. From Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. Just minor things, interesting things that talk about uh, national parks, talk about the language of the people, talk about private property and its role in the future kingdom. And certain people who were faithful in the days when Zechariah and Haggai came preaching are going to have a special place in the millennial kingdom because they were faithful in a day when the people were not. So, your work will be rewarded, my friends. God remembers our faithful service to Him. He remembers. And even in these days, let's not be like the church of Ephesus and lose our first love. You know, God, Jesus commended Ephesus for their, their work. Wait. Uh, their work, their... their uh, I'm... I'm, I'm he commended Ephesus for their works, their labor, and their patience. But yet they had lost their, their love. They still had work, labor, and patience, but they had lost their first love. Well, what does that mean? I think if we go back to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he commends them for something. And I think that's the clue. Ephesus had works, labor, and patience. Many of us have that in the churches today. Yet, they had lost their first love, left it. Jesus said, repent, gear up. But Thess the believers in Thessalonica and Macedonia were commended by Paul for having works of faith. Not labors, but labors of love. Not patience, but patience of hope. Let's don't be like Ephesus. Okay, we're going to serve God, works, labor, and patience. But let our works be works of faith. Works of faith that know and believe what's coming and live as if we believe it. Labors of love motivated by our love for God over our love for man. And patience of hope. Not just patience, okay, I'm just going to sit and wait it out. But willing to wait it out because we know and hope for these days that we've talked about here in the millennial kingdom. So I'll share a few small passages next week. 
Hopefully we can cover a few verses in chapter 20 and then uh, we'll, we'll pause for a time. So I hope this has been a blessing to you. I know I went a little long today, but um, I always enjoy looking in places in the scripture that we don't often visit. They're there for a reason. And there's some amazing truth in the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is in Messiah. We thank you for the distant hope revealed in detail in the scriptures meant to motivate those who live in dark and troublesome times. Lord, may we be motivated to get up off our rear end and to labor, to complete, to be committed to what you've called us to do as a church and as individual Christians. Bless our food today and our fellowship. May it be a time of rest in the Lord. And Father, we pray that you would hasten these things that you would hasten the coming for your church. Lord, we pray for those children that are in here that haven't given their lives to Christ and yet they know the difference between right and wrong. We, would, we pray you hasten these things, but not before you save everybody in this room. And we pray you do that right quickly. And Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for your promises. And thank you for the coming kingdom. Thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.